Cierra la puerta, por favor, será. Well, that was about the scariest fucking thing that has ever happened to me in my entire life. So, the I think the last recording I had, two guys sent us back the way we came. Then another guy came in a white Jeep and started really interrogating us. They took our phones. They took all of our shit out of the car and were looking through it. Uh, they saw we had a drone and they were really concerned about that because they thought we were like spying on them. Probably at the end, there were 30 some guys all armed to the teeth with heavy machine guns and bulletproof vests. Um, we went through about three different guys questioning us. One of them at one point said, to me, you're the government, DEA, which is a scary thing. Um, we were passing through with about a 45 minutes of daylight left and now it's pitch black. By the end of it, it was totally pitch black. I feel like we're really lucky right now. Cartel de Jalisco Nueva Generacion, CJNG, is the single criminal organization most responsible for these deaths on both sides of the border. Hundreds of men are ignoring the government's demand to lay down their guns and instead are threatening to wipe out the ruthless cartel themselves. As the country cracks down on drug lords, the cartel has emerged as a new force and a violent one. This is Vice News Reports, and I'm your host, Ariel Zemraz. Today, we bring you to the birthplace of a war that's been raging for decades. Vice News senior reporter Keegan Hamilton travels to Michoacan, where the modern era of Mexico's drug war started. Fifteen years ago, the government first sent troops to fight the cartels, and the battles have been going on nonstop ever since. Today, Michoacan is still the epicenter of the conflict. Keegan brings us to the front line of some of the fiercest fighting to try to understand if anything will or can change. And just a heads up, this episode heavily features gun violence. Test, 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 one, two, three. All right, it's... October 11th uh, at about 11.30 a.m. Sitting here in San Francisco airport in the international terminal. I'm about to catch a flight to Mexico City. It's very bizarre. Um, the airport is a ghost town. All right, what are we doing? Well, I'm going to meet up with Miguel Fernandez, producer advice. And then we're going to get in a car and drive west to the state of Michoacan which is currently the front lines of one of the bloodiest drug wars in Mexico. So I'm going to attempt to explain our story as succinctly as possible. So in 2006, Felipe Calderon was elected president of Mexico. So he deployed the military, thousands of soldiers, to Michoacan to sort of fight the cartels head on and retake the state. It didn't work like that. It just became a bloody mess. 
in Michoacan, and then that same strategy was deployed all over the country, and Mexico just got more and more violent. As cartels have broken up, they've become smaller groups that fight against each other. The corruption has remained, the impunity has remained, and there's new people in power in Michoacan, but there's basically no improvement in security for the people of, of this state. Michoacan's famous because at the low point of the cartel wars and, and situation there, sometime around 2013, 2014, a bunch of cities sort of took the law into their own hands and formed these self-defense troops, like community police. They call them auto-defenses. It's, it's basically like a militia to fight the cartels, drive them out and restore control of the cities. But there's a dark side to this where it became fighting fire with fire. And some of the old enemies of the cartel that were in power joined the auto defenses and each became cartel guys under a different name. There's a turf war that's been going on with various groups basically for the last 15 plus years. This is the same level of, of war. It's as hot as any conflict zone in the world. And we're going to meet sort of people who are in that orbit, people who are affected by this conflict, and tell their stories. That's the goal of this trip. Bye. It is the break of day, and literally the sun is just rising. And we just, uh, we're on the highway, and we just passed the sign entering the state of Michoacan. And it's beautiful. It's like foggy, and uh, we just came out of the mountains. Welcome to Michoacan. The state of Michoacan is huge. It's on the Pacific coast of Mexico, and it stretches almost to Mexico City. Aside from being the heart of the cartel wars, agriculture dominates the economy here. Most of the limes and avocados in Mexico come from Michoacan. You know that jingle you hear about avocados? Avocados from Mexico. Those come from Michoacan, from a part of the state known as the Tierra Caliente. Lately, it's been the cartel thing. It's the, it's hot. It's, it's a war zone. We also just passed a, like a brand new, shiny, large Ford truck. And he said that all of the Cartelos Unidos trucks look like that, except they have guys with machine guns in the back. Even in Mexico, where few places are untouched by cartel violence, the Tierra Caliente has a reputation for lawlessness. For the people who live here, options can be limited. One is stay and fight with the cartel. Two is stay and be part of an auto defensa, the paramilitary groups that defend their towns from the dominant cartels. Or three, try to stick it out and hope they aren't killed, or worse. And no matter what the government has done over the last decade and a half, the cartels have kept control over this area. Michoacan is a strategic state for drug trafficking. On its coast, it has a very busy industrial port where chemicals used to make drugs like methamphetamine and fentanyl are smuggled into the country. It also has highways that reach Mexico's capital. As soon as we entered the Tierra Caliente uh, through that toll booth a while back, this is immediately Cartelos Unidos territory. As recently as last week, apparently this group in the United Cartels emerged victorious in the last battle, and they control this area now, which is how we're able to, to be here. It's chaos. The United Cartels claim to be taking up this tradition of the auto defenses. 
but in reality, they're an alliance of local criminal groups, basically mini cartels, that are trying to maintain control over the little fiefdoms. Del abuelo en Michoacán. Por la nueva familia Michoacana. Los Viagras. They've been fighting for the past two years against a larger cartel that's trying to dominate the Tierra Caliente, the Jalisco New Generation Cartel. Fueling America's bottomless demand for drugs, Jalisco New Generation Cartel, known as CJNG, is now considered the most dangerous and fastest growing drug cartel in the world. Each side claims to be looking out for the civilians in the areas they control. But the United Cartels have really been selling their image as the good guys, even giving out care packages with food and supplies during the pandemic. But there's a dark side. They're involved in extortion, shaking down business owners for protection. They also produce and traffic crystal meth. They want to be seen as the scrappy underdog against the Jalisco cartel that's spreading all over Mexico. All right, we're taking a turn off the highway, down a little dirt road. Our minivan is being tested by this. All of this area is tightly controlled. To meet with members of the United Cartels, we had to do some legwork. Our fixer, uh, Juan Jose, delivered a letter to them basically saying, hey, we're coming, we want to interview you and learn more about why you're fighting, who you are. And they've agreed to meet with us, so we're going to go introduce ourselves, show our faces, and see if we can get permission to come back and get access to their operations and see more of, you know, what they're doing. They told us to come to this sleepy little town off the highway. We find our way to the meeting spot in a little plaza. We park and wait. If I have to say something, there's nothing that I hate more than to just wait like an idiot. We got a guy on a motorcycle who's coming up and eyeballing us, checking things out. I count one, two, three, four, five. At least five guys with guns. Wow. The boss's uh, personal bodyguard has like a bleach blonde mullet sticking out the back of his, his ball cap. Tiger King. He is, is extremely Tiger King. So we got a white, white pickup truck with no license plates that's slowly creeping around the, the park towards us. Our long wait might finally be over. Showtime, they say. More guys keep showing up. And eventually, there are at least 20 gunmen. Then the boss arrives in his big flashy truck. The cartel boss. He's got a gold-plated pistol sticking out of his waistband. And he's got a bodyguard with him who is carrying a, a backpack on, his, on the front of his chest. And we can only assume what's in there. We're having another round of negotiations here. He wants to talk, but not on camera. Why do they not want us to record this? Um, well, because we are dealing with people that are notoriously doing illegal stuff. Eventually, the boss tells us we can interview his deputy. Who do you work with? I'm with the guy who calls himself Juan Carlos, but that's not his real name. 
and that's not his real voice either. He's carrying an AR-15 rifle with a grenade launcher attached. He tells me he's from this area, El Aguaje. Can you tell me what, what happened here? He says the village is basically a ghost town. Around me, the roads are empty. There are abandoned buildings and burnt-out shells of cars. Juan Carlos says that before the Jalisco cartel came, it used to be a vibrant place. On the weekend, there was live music, bandas, people parading their horses around in the main plaza. The shops were bustling. But now, it's all gone. It's just ruins. He says the Jalisco cartel took people's homes, their profits, and their land. What I'm looking at is uh, a small house with a little patio out front. Juan Carlos shows me one of the abandoned homes. Almost everyone who used to live in this town has had to flee. It's a familiar story across Mexico. The government estimates that in recent years, between one and eight million people have been displaced by violence. This house, it's trashed. Bullet holes in the walls, there's glass from the windows all around me. And everywhere on the ground are shell casings. There's an old TV on the ground. And this looks like what used to be a little kid's mattress. Uh, it's got like Looney Tunes cartoons. And this mattress is now in, in what used to be the dining room, surrounded by trash and shell casings. Juan Carlos doesn't know what happened to the family that used to live here. He tells me a rival cartel used this place as a safe house, and later it was the site of a battle. He says what's happening here is a war. All of the towns have banded together to fight against the Jalisco New Generation cartel. It's one of the most violent and powerful groups in all of Mexico, led by a notorious kingpin known as El Mencho, who's replaced El Chapo as the most wanted drug lord on the planet. The DEA says this man is a major part of the problem. He's a rising Mexican drug lord named Nemesio Oseguera Cervantes, known simply as El Mencho. He's the number one priority for DEA and, and, and frankly, federal law enforcement in the United States. El Mencho grew up near the town we're in, El Aguaje. And according to news reports, he wants to return home and turn the region into a bunker where he can hide out and manage his empire. Over the last decade, the Jalisco New Generation Cartel has grown to become one of the largest suppliers of cocaine, heroin, and meth to the United States. El Mencho's cartel now has a presence in nearly every corner of Mexico, and his forces have been blamed for the record wave of violence across the country. When El Mencho decided to move into this part of Michoacan in 2019, his cartel's first move was an ambush that left 14 police officers dead in El Aguaje. As one agent put it, if El Mencho wants you to work for him, you have two options, say yes or be killed. That's why Juan Carlos and his group of United Cartels joined forces to take back this land. Juan Carlos tells me the locals got organized and requested help from the auto defenses. 
those paramilitaries, the battle cartels. A las legítimas autodefensas. He's careful to say the legitimate auto defenses. Y gracias a ellos es que nosotros pudimos recuperar o estamos recuperando la paz de nuestro pueblo. And he says thanks to them, they were able to kick the Jalisco cartel out of this area. Juan Carlos is telling of what happened here is of course the interpretation of a cartel member. He's not a simple lime farmer defending his hometown. It's a story I've heard before. Guys like Juan Carlos like to say they're here to protect civilians, and that without them, the rival cartel would come in and commit all kinds of atrocities. This is pure spin, but there's a kernel of truth in there. When a big cartel gets broken up, either by a government crackdown or because of fighting with rivals, it splinters these groups into smaller factions, and they start fighting amongst themselves to get a hold of their area. It just leads to more violence, and it seems like a never-ending cycle. When I ask him where his government is in all this, he's caging. But he suggests the Mexican police and military are helping them fight the Jalisco cartel. Sí, sí, sí ayudan. Sí ayudan. ¿Cómo no? He says, yeah, they help. Kind of with a wink and a nod. They've caught a lot of Jaliscos here, but it's not enough, he says. Michoacan has been plagued by corruption for years. And Juan Carlos isn't the only one claiming that the government supports the United Cartels. A couple years ago, one of their leaders released a video saying he'd been offered money from Michoacan's governor to pacify the state. Basically, to make the violence go down by any means necessary. When we were in Michoacan, multiple people told us they think the government backs the United Cartels. Michoacan's governor has denied that claim. But there's a long history of the state getting behind cartels claiming to be auto defenses. That United Cartels boss you just heard, he started out as a public face of the auto defensive movement. His guys got guns and police uniforms from the government, then they went back to being outlaws. The arrival of the Jalisco cartel gave Juan Carlos and the United Cartels another chance to start masquerading as the protectors of the people. Juan Carlos had seemed pretty calm and relaxed for most of our interview. When I asked about the Jalisco cartel, his voice had an edge to it. He sounded pissed. Tal vez yo no viva para contarlo, pero vamos a morir en el intento. Vamos a sacarlos de aquí. He says, I might not live to tell it, but we'll die trying. We're going to get the Jaliscos out of here. Today we're supposed to drive about two hours somewhere into the, the hills outside of town and meet some members of the Jalisco New Generation Cartel. Everybody we've talked to so far, whether it's other cartels, whether it's the community police, whether it's the citizens say, these are the bad guys, the ones who are kidnapping, killing, extorting, and we're gonna go meet them, I guess. I'm frankly a little nervous. Our fixer's nervous. Um, I think the whole crew's a little nervous, but uh, we've gotten assurances that they're gonna guarantee our safety and we're going to go do it and see what happens. The reason we're nervous is because these are objectively scary dudes. Over the last few years, the Jalisco cartel has grown to become one of the most violent cartels in Mexico and perhaps the most well-resourced. They pack an unprecedented level of firepower. Last year, a video went viral showing a bunch of Jalisco cartel hitmen, all dressed like commandos with grenade launchers and armored vehicles. 
It looked like an Army Special Forces unit. Mexico City's chief of police was shot and injured early Friday in a dramatic assassination attempt. They also tried to assassinate Mexico City's police chief last year, and they've been accused of several other high-profile attacks across the country. Since El Mencho is Mexico's most wanted fugitive, we knew we couldn't interview him. No high-ranking commander from the Jalisco cartel has ever given an interview. But through our sources, we were able to make contact with the cartel's forces in Michoacan. They gave us directions to a small town at the top of the mountain. We just passed a street sign that had uh, CJNG graffiti on it. It's one of those uh, curvy arrows that says it's a windy road, and it's been graffitied over with black spray paint that said CJNG, as if to say the cartel is this way. The road to the meeting place was barely a road at all. Just passed another street sign that had. CJNG, dangerous. So, yeah, that's where we are. Our highway, paved highway, just turned to dirt. So far off the grid, it's not even funny. When we got to the town, there was nobody waiting for us. We found our way back to the highway, but we kept passing burned-out cars. This was clearly a war zone. And we had a big problem. We weren't sure whose territory we were in. We'd gone looking for the Jalisco cartel, but this was right on the front lines. It was possible we'd crossed into an area controlled by the United Cartels. We kept passing through little towns on the highway, but we didn't have time to stop and ask around. The sun was setting, and at night, the cartels blocked the roads. It wasn't long before we hit a checkpoint. The cartel guys stopped us. We said we'd gotten lost and that we were journalists. They got on their radios. So we just uh, came up to a checkpoint on the way to El Aguaje. One heavy-duty soldier-looking guy, full camo, body armor, machine gun, and then a second guy with a heavy machine gun belt-fed machine gun. Now the road was blocked with logs. Both of those guys were like serious gangster motherfuckers. Tattoos. We take a chance, thinking maybe these were United Cartel guys. We tell them we met their boss just a few days ago, hoping they might remember us. So they send us back down the road, where we get stopped by another guy, a fat man in a camo shirt with a rifle by his side. With his rifle at his side, he orders us all out of the car. I had to stop recording. Alright, well, that was about the scariest fucking thing that has ever happened to me in my entire life. It wasn't the United Cartels after all. Okay. It was their enemies, the Jalisco Cartel, the guys we'd been looking for. Only they weren't expecting us. So I think the last recording I had, two guys sent us back the way we came. Then another guy came in a white Jeep and started really interrogating us. He asked for all of our press badges. They took our phones. 
They took all of our shit out of the car and were looking through it. There were 30 some guys all armed to the teeth with heavy machine guns and bulletproof vests. All of these guys were smoking weed, laughing, having a good time, uh, except for one very serious lieutenant who was fucking just intense. He, at the end, was bragging about how we'd found the heart of the mafia and they were the most courageous and fiercest fighters in all of Mexico, that they were sent here by Almencho to fight for this area. At the end, they're like, we're the good guys here. We're coming to, like, secure this area and protect them. <sighs> Miguel, being the fucking amazing producer he is, uh, had a one-on-one -on -one conversation with the Comandante who was in charge of those guys and talked them into letting us go, and not only that, to giving us an interview tomorrow morning. Miguel, what did you say to the Comandante? I told them what we do. I told them that our job is to find every perspective of this conflict, and he respected that. When he started talking about the struggles that he does, I said like, well, you know, that's pretty, pretty fucking interesting. Do you want me, why don't, why don't you give me an interview? And he was like, uh, wait. And he left, and when he came back, he was like, all right, come tomorrow at 11. We're um, going back from the checkpoint to the town of Aguilila, from where we came. We're going to try to find a place to stay. I didn't get much sleep that night. We seriously considered calling off the whole thing and getting the hell out of Michoacan. The next morning, we showed up at a little town, not far from where we were stopped the night before. The cartel guys showed up in armored trucks. One of them had holes for 50 caliber sniper rifles cut into the windows. It belonged to the Jalisco cartel commander for this region, the guy we were there to interview. Adelante, adelante. Adelante, central, central. ¿Cómo fue el reporte, central? This is the first time anyone this high up in the Jalisco cartel has given an interview. Just a few steps away from our meeting place was a little cemetery, sort of hidden behind a concrete wall. That's where he wanted to do the interview, in the cemetery. It felt over the top. He doesn't want us to use his real name or voice. Everything about him looks intimidating. He's wearing a helmet, bulletproof vest, and has an assault rifle with a grenade launcher on his lap. The grenades are strapped to his chest next to a walkie-talkie. Can you please introduce yourself, however you want to be uh, identified? He says the Jalisco cartel are really the good guys. The commander is from Michoacan, and he says he's fighting to free their villages from the United Cartels. And he says they'll keep fighting until they finish what they came here to do. I wanted to know what the Comandante thought about how his enemies see him. On the other side of this conflict, the people you're fighting, there's, as we've been told, a group of united cartels who say that they're fighting against you because you're extorting people, you're robbing people. What do you say to what they told us? Eh, a mí no puede haber alguien que diga eh, secuestramos 
He says no one can tell him that they kidnap people, steal or extort. They don't do that. He tells me they're drug dealers. They produce, export and sell drugs. That's what they do. Because of the ongoing turf war, hundreds of families have been displaced from their homes. Since he's a local, I wanted to know what he thought about these people. How do you feel about the people who are civilians who live in these areas we're fighting, who've been displaced? That's the saddest part of this story, he says. The people don't understand why the cartels are fighting. And sometimes if a civilian offers the Jalisco cartel food, the United Cartels will come after them. He says El Mencho, his boss, is a very honorable person. So they try to follow the example that he sets. And that means not harming innocent civilians. That's against the orders that he has, and his principles too. We know at least some of what he's saying isn't true. He might be from Michoacan, but his guys we met the night before, they all said they're from the neighboring state of Jalisco. People in Michoacan have been living in a world like this for a long time, almost 15 years now, ever since the government sent the Mexican army to fight the cartels here. I wanted to know if the Jalisco cartel commander saw an end to the fighting. Where do you see Mexico and the state of Michoacan 15 years in the future from now? He tells me that in 15 years, he'd like to be able to walk around without his rifle and live with his family again, with his four kids in their pueblo. He blames the government and says they're illegitimate because they help the Jalisco cartel's enemies. Radio chatter from a walkie-talkie attached to his bulletproof vest interrupts our interview. What you're describing to me... We only have a few minutes. He says if he dies fighting, the war was worth it. And the war will keep going. It never ends. After our interview with the Jalisco commander, we ran into a group of locals huddled together just a few minutes away from the cemetery. They told us that because of the fighting, nobody could get through El Aguaje on the highway, not even trucks carrying essentials like food and medicine. We had to go back in the opposite direction. We don't go out the way we came. We take like a right basically and go go north. We go around it. Towards the coast of Michoacan. Okay. 
Uh, I've got to note that this is absolutely beautiful country that we've been driving through. The, we were along the beach, and it was just lush vegetation, flowers, uh, and just beautiful sand beaches, rolling waves. We were commenting that it looked like Maui uh, with how lush the vegetation is and the beaches and everything. Now we're heading away from the beach up into the, the hills, and this is a rough road. also just about to get dark. We're, we're at dusk right now. It's a beautiful pink sky behind us, um, but it's going to be dark here in just a few minutes. There are a few independent communities in Michoacan that are not dominated by drug cartels. We'd heard about one town, about 100 miles west of El Aguaje, that was being protected by a true self-defense force. It's called Astula. It's an indigenous community full of farmers and fishermen, but they're also in prime drug smuggling territory. They've been fighting off the cartels for years, and lately it's been the Jalisco cartel. Astula is a really interesting place. It's an indigenous community that has taken up arms and kicked out what used to be the municipal police and now they're fighting against the cartel to protect their land. We just passed a community checkpoint, guys with shotguns on the road. They set up checkpoints on the roads. Nobody goes in or out without permission. Don Ezekiel, the head of the community, radioed ahead to let him know that we'd be coming and to sort of, I guess, be on the lookout, be ready. Aquí estamos. We met with the head of the town council, Don Ezequiel Grajeda. He's not exactly a village elder. He's middle-aged and soft-spoken, but he commands respect. He took us on a road into the forest, where about two dozen community members are clearing trees and shoveling dirt from the roads. Everybody has shovels and pickaxes, and they're just shoveling dirt into the road, trying to smooth it over. This road's been totally destroyed by the rainstorm we had last night. The workers stop what they're doing and greet Ezekiel warmly. Everyone here is a volunteer. I asked what would happen if the community wasn't doing this themselves. Ezekiel tells me that the roads would be blocked and filled with mud from dirt and landslides. This happens a lot during the rainy season. These roads are a symbol of the government's absence here. It would be great if the government took care of this, but over the years, the people of Asula have lost trust. With the roads, it's a case of neglect. But when it comes to security, in their experience, the Mexican government works hand-in-hand hand with the cartels. Have you personally been affected by cartel violence in any way, in your life, your family? He tells me the cartels have killed dozens of community leaders over the years. This might sound familiar by now. The people here had the choice of staying and fighting for their land or accepting life under the cartel. So they decided to fight back, and it worked for a while. 
But then, according to the townspeople, a former leader of the community police got corrupted and joined up with the Jalisco cartel. And ever since, the town leaders have been getting threats. He says if the cartel gets past the checkpoints and into the community, they're coming for everyone. Do you feel safer because the government isn't here and that you're doing this work yourselves and taking it into your own hands? Sí, es la forma que nos sentimos más seguros porque He says they actually feel more secure without the government around. Organización de seguridad. Entonces, ya no confiamos en en el gobierno, ¿verdad? Porque nosotros mismos la estamos dando. He says they're better off providing their own security. It's not that they don't need the government at all. The state still provides electricity and medicine and all kinds of essential services. But Astula is also self-sufficient in a lot of ways. Everyone pitches in to help with things like maintaining the roads and standing guard at the checkpoints. And every member of the community gets free land. Their homes get built with wood from the forest. There's enough food that nobody goes hungry. What does it mean to these people to have this organization like this to put this together? They're an indigenous community, and he says proudly that this is their land. Every decision in Astula is made by a direct vote of the whole town. For example, the community could make a lot of money by letting companies exploit their mines and harvest their timber, but they collectively decided to protect their land and the environment. That kind of organization doesn't happen overnight. Do you feel like the government has ignored you or forsaken you because you're, this is an indigenous community? El gobierno lo que no le interesa que las que la comunidad o las comunidades estén organizadas. He says the government isn't really that interested in Astula because they're so well organized. It's easy to just leave them alone and let them do their own thing. And maybe that's true of the cartels too. The Jalisco cartel has the firepower to take over Astula, but with all their defenses, Astula is basically making it more trouble than it's worth. Before we left, some community members invited us to take a look at what's become a symbol of their success. It's a beach about a half hour outside of town. This is just a gorgeous beach. Um, long white sand, big waves. Beautiful to look at. Oh, look at that turtle. Holy shit. That's a big turtle. A few years ago, this beach was cartel territory. Now it's a tourist attraction, a sanctuary for migrating sea turtles. We got roughly two dozen tourists all gathered around this turtle. We got selfie sticks around the turtle. Uh, we got little kids who are losing their minds over turtles. While the turtles crawl up the beach to lay their eggs, community police officers stand guard with their assault rifles. All over Mexico, there are little towns like this one, trying to find some semblance of peace and security. This community has beat back the cartels, for now.
Special thanks to Vice Senior Reporter Keegan Hamilton and producer Miguel Fernandez-Flores, who reported and helped produce this episode. The cinematographer was Sergen Stoikovich, and Juan Jose Estrada Serafin was our fixer. Vice News Reports is produced by Jesse Alejandro Cuttrell, Jen Kinney, Janice Yamoka, and Julia Nutter. Our senior producers are Ashley Cleek and Adiza Egan. Our associate producers are Sam Egan, Sophie Cazes, and Adriana Rodriguez. Sound design and music composition by Steve Bone and Kyle Murdoch. Our executive producer and VP of Vice Audio is Kate Osborne. Janet Lee is senior production manager for Vice Audio. Production coordination by Steph Brown. Fact-checking by Nicole Pasolka. Legal review by Yoni Berkovitz. Our theme music is by Steve Bone. Security by Rami Galli and Sharbil Namor. From iHeart executive producer Mangesh Hatikador and senior producer Nikki Etor. I'm Ariel Zimros. I know podcast hosts say this all the time, but I really do mean this. Please rate and review this pod. It really helps other people find the show. Vice News Reports drops every Thursday, so be sure to check back in next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.